Welcome to the Free Range Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Livermore. This episode is sponsored by the program on law, communities, and the environment at the University of Virginia School of Law. With me today is Matthew Bertner, a professor of compositions and computer technologies in the music department at UVA. His work explores ecology and the aesthetic link between human expression and environmental systems. His new album, Icefield, was recently released by Ravello Records. Matthew, thanks for joining me today. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me on your show. So in the, in the publicity materials for Icefield, I, I saw this question. It struck me as a, an interesting point of defar- departure. The question was, if glaciers could speak, what would they tell us? And I guess my, my question for you is, do you see your compositions or the compositions on this particular uh, collection of works anyway as playing this kind of translational role between humans and the natural and the natural world? Well, I think that the music in that it embeds systems of change from the natural world as musical forms, I think that it challenges listeners to think outside of our conventional ways of understanding music. Um, that's my that's part of my 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 hope with this kind of work because I feel like part of our uh, challenge as um as humans is to to really consider the the other inhabitants of this world um as you know as valuable as um living as even sentient and so i've i've extended that past the uh and other animals and and even plants and start imagining you know, if the river has a kind of sentience or being, you know, what does it, what is it thinking? If does the glacier have a kind of, is it an earth animal in some sense? And so the music is really trying to decenter humans in order to understand these other types of complex systems that um, make up our environment. Yeah, it's really interesting. This So... Um, on the title track, uh, just to give an example, the um, it's a, it's it's this kind of haunting, beautiful um, composition. And my understanding, again, just looking at some of the the notes, is that the way that was constructed was you went out into the middle of this huge uh, field of ice, basically. I mean, huge being like thousand you know thousand square miles, um, mm-hmm. so really big, with a saxophone and some. Um, and some recording equipment, microphones, and the like. So let's let's give that a listen. this composition just from a physical perspective 
what we're hearing is is includes sounds from the natural environment, wind, and that that kind of thing you could imagine, but also the saxophone itself. How how is that just kind of as a practical matter? How do you how do you make that happen? <laughs> well, yeah, it's um, it's super interesting just as a practical matter uh, because you know I'm in this work I'm really imagining the ice field itself, which is the headwater for hundreds of glaciers in the region. So mm. it's a kind of proto glacier system. I'm imagining that as a musical instrument. And so I brought the bass saxophone out because it's like the biggest saxophone that I have. And the saxophone is the instrument that I that I play. So it's like, you know, I wanted to bring my best to the to the ice field, <laughs> <laughs> the best thing I could bring. And so I took uh-huh. the bass out. And, you know, the bass saxophone is this little tiny speck of gold out in the <laughs> middle of this vast system of, of, of ice. And then I put microphones uh in the saxophone, but also inside the the ice field. So I dug down, put microphones down in the snow, um, put them, you know, around near the instrument, but also far away from the instrument. So you would pick Mm -hmm. up the environment and then made this multi-channel recording where we are hearing the saxophone played, you know, as an acoustic instrument, but we're also listening to the saxophone filtered through the ice field itself. So the... Mm -hmm. The snow, you know, the the sound of my playing is going, is resonating down through the snow and being picked up by the microphones down there. And then that's, you know, providing a kind of filter to the saxophone sound. And then the wind is in there and the sounds of the snow itself. Um, I I played the snow, so I moved my hands around on Mm. it and recorded that. All that's in this this piece, and it's really trying to create this kind of. I mean, there's a couple ways of thinking about it. I guess it'd be one would be like a duet between mm-hmm. the 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 sax and the and the ice field, but the other is maybe um, a kind of hybrid human nature instrument. That's like a kind of collaboration between this massive environmental system and this massive quote <laughs> uh, <laughs> instrument you know <laughs> if you watch the video on on youtube there's a music video for this uh for this track and it, it's basically a, a real-time film of me playing that out there so you can kind of get a sense of what we're talking about yeah and, and the, the scale that the the, the scale is really the 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 juxtaposition of scales is 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 really fun there because right the the bass sax is is huge <laughs> in a sense but <laughs> but not compared to uh, to a thousand mile square ice field <laughs> yeah so I took I got um, I hired a pilot to fly me out there with the bass sax and it's a it uses a kind of ski plane so they they can land on mm-hmm. that on that ice field and um, the bass sax and I and my recording equipment's pretty much all that could fit in that plane and they dropped me off and they said well you know. They had I had to have um, survival gear for several days because huh. the weather conditions are such that they might not they don't know when they can come get you. So you have to be ready to stay out there. So um, I had to decouple everything from the snow because it's so cold and the sun's just beating down. So I had to have everything also protected from overheating and just from the sun itself. So it's a really weird kind of working environment. Um, really interesting place to work. And of course, I you know the batteries are are dying. So you have to have power. So I'm using a solar, I have a solar charging system. And then I had to arrange it all because I was shooting it as a, I was recording and recording a video. Everything had to be kind of positioned so that it didn't, um, 
you know, look messy or obstruct the idea of the piece or, or make sound itself in the environment. Mm-hmm. So it was really, it was a fascinating project. Um, it was definitely one of the, one of the coolest projects I've, I've ever been involved in. Yeah. That is so much fun. And then when you, when you were out there, this is, I mean, just kind of more of a process question, but again, I'm just in, interested was, is the balance between improvisation on the spot and kind of composition that you had done ahead of time. Cause it seems like I can imagine kind of going both ways into something like that. Um, yes. Yeah, so, so was this a piece that you had largely composed ahead of time entirely ahead of time, or was there improvisation that was happening as well in that environment? Definitely improvisation because I, I did compose a lot before and also prepare a lot before um, I wrote melodies and um, certain kinds of materials and played the saxophone, imagining what I might do out there. And then I prepared um, by by planning both the um, kind of practical survival necessities, but then also the microphone and you know how that was going to work. And so I went into it with this this idea, but also not knowing it really at all what was going to happen because it's like super unpredictable, right? It could be. Right. The weather is, first of all, it's just, it's just un, very unpredictable. Like, I, this was my third attempt. I got dropped off on the third attempt. Oh. The, first, the first times, the flights were canceled because of weather. And, um, and it was a good thing, too, because uh, they got, like, like, five feet of snow. So imagine being out there and it like five feet of snow on top of you. I mean, it's yeah. really like a very dangerous. But um, but when I went, it was beautiful weather. And uh, so I had prepared all this and then I got there and it was just kind of like, OK, now it's time to start. And the first thing I did was make coffee <laughs> because, you know, that's like a good place to start. <laughs> right. Warm up the old, yeah, the old lungs a little bit. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then just started like trudging around planning out the session and like working mm-hmm. on it and I and I had my materials so I I tried to um I started with those elements and then improvised with the ice field itself and and recorded 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 and then um I took all that material back to the studio and and then com- I think composed the piece by edits so I I'd, mm. I'd, I'd edit what I did take out a good part find a part of the ice field sound that was really interesting and layer that. And so there's, there's layers in the recording. It's not like a, a single take real time recording. It's a creative um, mixing of, of a real time recording session. Right. Wow. So there's a lot of improvisation and it's, you know, that's like in general, I think of it as like a, um, uh, an approach to the natural world because you know, in composition and in human music, we often um, try to try to fix things, like mm-hmm. like uh, fix them in in frequency. So we want to be able to play a C on the instrument it needs to sound like a C every time, and then D needs to be tuned perfectly. You know, a major second above that. But in the environment, it doesn't follow our our um, interests in sound. There are different properties, different organizational systems of sound in the environment. And so part of this whole endeavor with environmental music is discovering what those systems are and learning to appreciate the beauty of what they are already, not necessarily try to make it conform to what we think of as beautiful music. Yeah, this should really, really cool and interesting, interesting stuff. I mean, one... um, 
question that just kind of comes out of that for me is, you know, when I think of playing music, you're you're often people can play music by themselves, but you're also playing with other people in a in a group um, of some kind. You think of um, improvisation, canonically jazz improvisation, where people are kind of riffing off of each other. And so I guess one question for you is when you're out there in the in that environment and especially your your it's a challenging environment you're doing improvisation in that way you're impro- improvising with the with the physical materials and your setup and it's all kind of spontaneous and in the moment how much of that once you actually get into playing and you're kind of in the in the flow of of, of playing along um, but you're responding to what's happening in the in the environment to what degree does that feel like just the just the physicality of it or the um kind of just musically, does it feel similar to when you're playing with other people where, you know, they're changing, you know, they're making changes, especially again, in in an improv kind of situation and you're responding and they're responding. Does it have that same kind of feel to it when you're say in this situation where you were by yourself, but you're interacting with this whole, you know, complex environment? Well, I would say that it does not, does not feel like that at Mm -hmm. all. Um, Pretty much because, the natural world doesn't care about (laughs) us. You know, Uh it doesn't, it's not responding to us. It doesn't, it's not even speaking. I mean, we're so far from speaking the same language of the natural world that we certainly can't play music um, with these systems yet in a way that they could respond. That has to, that, that has to be earned. That's like something, you know, even improvisers who play together, human improvisers are, um, are, studying that kind of human human interaction Mm -hmm. so to translate that into you know into human environment interaction that's a that's a far leap um for example what 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 i feel what i think feels the most um alien in improvising with the natural world is the is the sense of temporality because Mm -hmm. there's like you know, this ice field or the forest or in, or a river or the ocean, no matter what system it is, these places have vast senses of temporality. And we're kind of fixated on the, the Mesa level, you know, three second events and 10 second melodies and maybe a piece lasts five to 10 minutes. Um, well, the environment's not like I mean, yeah, there's stuff happening on that level, but the the grand cycles of the place and the systems of change can far exceed that. And so, you know, it if the ice field is interested in playing with me, it's gonna, you know, I'm just a blip. I'm just a small blip in in the in its scale of temporality, like a like a glitch in. Um, in the electroacoustic system, it's like a clip or something that happens. That's my whole experience. It's just a little clip inside the, the ice field. So that's really weird because you're playing, you know, and you put all this energy into your instrument, you're blowing, you play your best melody that you've, you've composed and you play it and you expand it and you do all this stuff. And that's, you know, you think you've done a good job and then you just stop and there's just like the ice field's still there, uh-huh. still persisting, you know, doing yeah. what it was doing before you started. And you're like, <laughs> right. okay, so <laughs> what can I do here? You know, this is, and that's, I, I, so, so part of it is, is, I mean, there's two things that could happen. You could turn away from it. You could say, mm-hmm. okay, the ice field is not sentient. It does not 
care. It does not listen to me. There's no kind of interaction here. I'm not part of it. But mm-hmm. then another another thing, another way to do is like, well, I'm not, I'm not yet. Dis- I haven't discovered the mode of communication yet. Um, I need to play more with it. I need to get used to this feeling of of vast temporality and like, you know, just even if I can't understand it, I have to kind of familiarize myself with that feeling that like I can just stop in the middle of a phrase, get up, walk over, drink some coffee, go back. The ice field doesn't care. And then pick up where I left off. And that was like, okay, that would not really work in a jazz, you know, context. If you, if one of the musicians just kind of stopped playing, got up, walked away, came back like 15 minutes later, well, the song would be over. It's over. The ice field's not over. It's like in a different scale of time. I don't know. That's a, that's kind of a strange way to think, but but I'm I'm really committed to understanding the temporality and the resonance of these natural systems um, as forms of aesthetics that we can engage with, partly as a way of decentering ourselves, as a kind of politics of decentering the the human um, will as the only thing that we are focused on. Um, and I think that music can uh, can teach us about, you know, how to appreciate the these systems in the natural world, even very strange ones like the ice field. Yeah. Wow. And so, I mean, one of the um, just the t- as we're talking about timescales, one of the this puts me in mind of some some of your other work um, that 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 I've come across. Um, where you're doing something different with timescales. So what I'm talking about is where you, where you take data from that you collect or that is collected from the environment, and then you translate that data into, into sounds, basically, right? Yeah. As a way of, um, and that, in a way, that is also um, working with different timescales because you're taking uh, a process, you know, like sea, um, sea ice, extent or something like that that we could yes. that we could collect data on and that's how, happening over very long time scales in a way that's the planet talking to us in its own time scale language you know but it's hard for us to see that or it's hard for us to understand that um that language at that time scales and so you're you're translate translating that into uh, a different time scale that that maybe is a little bit more comprehensible for a human being Right. So, yeah, this is um, two of the benefits of sonification. Um, One is being able to listen to things that we can't otherwise listen to, like listen to data that doesn't itself make sound. So like, Mm -hmm. you know, the, the, the waves on the beach make sound and we can record them and we can use that sound file to um, understand the energy of the, of the movement of the water, but the light that's reflecting off the waves doesn't make sound, and we can't um, we can't hear that. But with sonification, we can take some sort of light data and turn it into sound, so that we could couple that with the sound of the waves. We could couple a, a computer sonification of the light on the waves and have a different understanding of that system through sound. That's one of the interesting things about sonification. The other is that um, that it does allow us to uh, transpose the temporality to to take something that's like 40 years of data and bring it down to the level of a um you know of a of a phrase a musical phrase or a musical movement and so you know you can hear these changes that are obviously outside of the realm of our perception except 
over like a lifespan, but they could easily exceed our lifespans. Um, and you could listen to them in a minute or two and get a sense of what's happening. So that is a really wonderful thing about um, about sonification. And I have done this with like the work Ice Prints that's on the Ice Field album mm-hmm. uses ice extent data from the Arctic mapped into piano music. Um, and then there's another piece on there called Sonification of an Arctic Lagoon that takes... Um, different layers of data and and creates musical instruments and and plays that out over a full year so you in in the five minutes of the piece well it's four minutes actually the four minutes of the piece you hear one year of data uh mapped into that musical form and it's it's dramatic it's it's amazing in four minutes um it's so it's so dynamic this environment in the arctic where things are frozen all winter and then they just explode with productivity in the summer months and then they freeze again and it's just this incredibly dynamic environment and the sonification lets us hear that as a musical form great well maybe um uh, this would be a, a nice time that we could hear a little bit of uh, a sonification that you put together either either one from uh, Icefield or from um, another context. Yeah, let's listen to a little bit of the sonification of an Arctic lagoon and let's listen to perhaps like the late winter months um, in the Arctic. This would be like March, starting mm-hmm. in about March and then through the summer months. And you can hear that great explosion of harmonic spectral energy as the summer comes to uh, comes into comes into um, sounding. Great. So that's really, really interesting. And one of the things that this puts me just in mind of is is the use of um, uh, recording instruments and electronics and computers and how that that's different from, you know, um, kind of the old days when we would we would use, um, you know, more classical instruments, just standard instruments. And I guess what I'm thinking here is. Uh, 
in at least some music in the past, you have, I think, some attempts to portray like the changing seasons or, you know, like that's kind of in the background that there's something about the natural environment that has like inspired a musical composition. But here you're actually taking like data that's collected about the world and translating that into um, like directly translating that uh, rather than kind of being inspired by that. And I, I wonder if that's an interesting, worthwhile distinction, just kind of almost in the, like the history of, of music or the history of Western music. Yeah, I think that's right. There's a, there's a lot of music that um, involves a kind of impression of the natural world. And I think certainly for as long as people have been making music, they've been making music about the natural world. So in many ways, like this eco-acoustic approach is perfectly in line with what people have been doing since they, you know, musicians have been doing forever. Right. On the other hand, there's some new um, dimensions to it because specifically because the tools that we have are, are different. Um, you know, the, 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 the computer, the personal computer that allows you to apply sophisticated computation onto data and run things at us at a sample rate level so that you can turn um, that data into sound. That's a very recent development relatively in music. Um, you know, we can, we can conjecture that, you know, if Debussy had had access to this kind of uh, technology or Mendelssohn or, you know, old, you know, anyone of the, of the musicians of any different tradition that was inspired by the natural world, that they might've used this as, as well. And the music might've taken on different, um, different forms. Um, I think that one of the things that excites me about the, the sonification and the, uh, more than impression, impressionism is that, um, it doesn't, the sonification, the data doesn't always sound like you want it to sound. And mm -hmm. this is like a big, you know, problem with it. It's like the, <laughs> you turn the data into sound and it's like, well, that's kind of ugly. Or <laughs> right. that's, that's kind of malformed. Like it doesn't, uh -huh. it doesn't, it's not satisfying. It's like, why is it so, why is it, doesn't it change very much? Like, why is it just, or why is it going down when it should be going, when I feel like it should be going up? Well, that's because it's, it's the data, right. like that's the way the world's working, you know? So you can, I mean, then you have a choice. It's like, you can either change the sound, like change the data, but then you're not really representing the system anymore. You've moved into that impressionistic um, approach, or you can like listen to it and try to, you know, understand it for what it is and maybe find beauty in that or learn about the beauty that's in there. That's the part that really excites me about the sonification. I mean, I can tell you that for every one successful sonification, like I think that um, Arctic Lagoon sonification is successful. For every one of those, there's probably 30 that are not successful as, as music. And, you know, so you listen to them you learn about them and then you have a choice. You can like, well, either just, th just throw them away or maybe you can use them in a way that's not like in the foreground. So um, I've used, for example, uh, annual cycles of thawing and refreezing, these mm -hmm. kind of oscillations of, of, uh, of warming on an annual cycle. I've used that as um, beats. So I've taken that, 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 
that year long cycle and compressed it down to like 200 milliseconds so that it just goes bloop. But that mm-hmm. little bloop contains a whole year of data. So hmm. where it wasn't very interesting to listen to the year kind of cycle, I found it quite exciting that there was a beat in the music that was like bloop, 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 that represented the, you know, the, the actual data from the natural world. So at that point, you know, there's no listener that's going to hear that and say, oh, I think that sounds like 1986, like the thawing <laughs> right. of music. But, but, but that's okay because this is also conceptual art. Like it's okay that you don't, can't hear everything that's in music. It's about what's there and about your mind, like being excited about what's there as much as it is about like the actual, um, the actual notes that are there. Yeah. So that, that, that's a whole fascinating line to explore too is, and maybe we could get back to it. Cause I really do think that's a, a, a kind of a fascinating element of a lot of your uh, work is that is the kind of conceptual piece of it. Um, and that really matters. Um, but w- w- one thing that I thought we just kind of get on the table too is it strikes me. And, and this is probably incomplete. So let's m- add to it as appropriate that there are, kind of a couple of different ways that your music incorporates this interaction with the, with the natural world. So there's the sonification that we were kind of describing, right? Where you have um, basically data that's been collected through some kind of data collection measurement kind of instrument that um, you can then translate over into a uh, sound basically. Um, and that's, that's the sonification. Then there are um, using the natural world or some part of the natural world as an instrument, right? And that's what we were kind of talking about um, with Icefield, where you're playing the, the the saxophone, but you're also, you know, swishing around the snow and the saxophone's being played through the ice. And so the, the world kind of becomes this instrument that you're interacting with um, to create sounds. And then there's a, and again, kind of correct me, <laughs> correct me if I'm wrong here, this seems like a third category as well, which is, kind of directly kind of pass in some sense, quote unquote, passively recording sounds that are that happening in the natural world without necessarily your intervention and then using those kinds of sounds in compositions and so on. Is that is that also part of your work as well? Yeah, I mean, I think you've basically done about as good a job as like I've ever done in describing like ecoacoustics methods. When I talk about it, I talk about those three approaches. And when I teach ecoacoustic music, I teach those three approaches. We learn each one of those things is like a, a kind of field of study. And, mm. and you can make pieces that are so to recast them into the music um, language. I call, we call the recording the natural world soundscape or field recording. And that's, you know, it's a creative action because you have to choose where to put the microphones and what mm-hmm. microphones to use and all that. But it's, um, you know, the idea is that you're recording some phenomena that's happening and then listening to it and understanding it and using it kind of as is. Um, and then and then the, the sonification, um, which you described beautifully. And then, and then the third would be the human nature interaction, which involves that kind of performance and performative element of um, interacting with these systems, you know, which can be so wonderful as musical instruments um, mm-hmm. to bring the sensitivity of a musician who spent, you know, imagine like a violinist spends 10 hours a day practicing for years and years and years and has this kind of amazing 
amazing ear hand coordination with this with this machine the mm-hmm. violin to bring that level that sophisticated training to the snow i mean it's like you know the snow is in the music instrument instead of the violin right. there's so much and or the water or the sand whatever it is you know there's like a, a as much detail and sensitivity in that environmental material as there is in the violin we just don't tend to think about it as an expressive instrument but so so those three things definitely are are all at play and to varying degrees in any composition yeah and it, you know it's interesting as you as you're as we're kind of talking about the that that last category the the using or interacting with the natural world in such a way as to in this kind of instrument way right as um you know, you got to figure that that those were the earliest musical instruments um, was, you know, kind of simple drums and, and flutes that you could kind of um, that maybe were just already someone found or that required a very little amount of manipulation to create. So in a sense, that's it's very interesting because that approach is very um, presumably has a very long history. Um, even if it's been a little lost for the last couple hundred years, uh, at least in the West, whereas something like sonification or recordings, those really rely on advanced um, technologies that we've only had in the case of recording, I don't know, 100 years or so, 150 mm-hmm. years. Um, and then sonification is using data analytic yeah. techniques that are decades old. Absolutely. That's such a good point. Um, that's not something that I've really, you know, articulated like that i love that idea that there's that one of these these three things are not the same there's one that's actually very very fundamental um because you're at you're totally right of course it's about the the human body and generating sound with um you know external uh uh uh, resonant sources so like you can sing, you can move your hands and you can touch things and you can dance and you know and that's our first that's our first music for sure. Then you pick up a stick, you pick up a rock, that becomes like another tool and then it just goes from there. But absolutely um, that's that's as old as music. And then these other things, uh, I mean, we might be able to with our, you know, with our um, academic sensibilities to discover a history of sonification that predates mm-hmm. uh, computation in the in the sense of computers that we think of now like you know there are ways that data was mapped into sound before the computer hmm. um, actual data it was done you know by by with you know hand by hand computing mm-hmm. and there's probably um, notions of recording that predate the 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 field recorder which was a you know invented from in world war uh two and came into use in the late 50s um when the when the um, nazi germans left paris and left their field recorders and was Mm. taken up by artists and used um to make art but uh you know before that you have messian um in the forest with his music paper listening to birds and transcribing them in real time on the paper you know so Messian was a kind with his amazing ear was a kind of recorder himself, um, you know. So, so we could probably keep going and find examples of that. But, but, but absolutely, um, 
there's one of those three approaches that's um you know really really fundamental to music ironically it's the one that's probably the least recognized in my field so we often there are there are lots of there's lots of discussion of sonification there's lots of discussion of soundscape and field recording but there's very little um research and discussion into human nature interaction and that kind of performance of natural materials relatively um to those other two yeah that's really really interesting and there's yeah it seems that you know just thinking about a violin right there's i mean there's a whole history of those types of instruments and you know at some point it just kind of flows back into something that was you know people walking around and and just engaging with um with things that they found in the in the natural world. Now, um, thinking about the, the the soundscape field recording, you've you've spent a lot of time um, out out in 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 nature doing these types of field recordings. Do you do you have any? I'm wondering if we can hear perhaps some some examples. If you have any any favorites that you think um, tell kind of a particular uh, interesting story or, or are evocative of a, of a of a particular place. Oh yeah, that's interesting. Um, Yes, of course. Uh, I, I mean, every 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 recording, of course, is telling that story. But um, let me play. Uh, all right, so I have three just come to mind right now. But let me focus on 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 just one because it's so unusual and so uh, marvelous. Um, when I, I visited um, Guatemala. And um, there was an erupting volcano in Guatemala, and 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 so I hired some guides to take me up the the, the Mount Pacaya where this 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 volcano is erupting. And these people live in the shadow of this volcano, so they they understand how to navigate the lava flows safely. Um, whereas, of course, I I didn't. And they took me. The guides took me up there to record the sounds of the lava coming out of the earth. And um, this was such an amazing system because you've got the force of the lava coming, pushing out of the volcano and then quickly cooling at the surface when it hits the, it's, hits the air. Um, it cools on the surface of the lava, but it stays molten underneath. And so mm. as these kind of crusts form on the surface, they're breaking off as the lava like breaks, cracks its own forming skin and they fall down and they make this kind of clicking tinkling um uh breaking like shattering sound but it happens in a way that's perpetual it's like it's like glass breaking perpetually Hmm. um so so i mean that's that's one that i think is really incredible we could listen to that great that sounds wonderful let's let's give that a listen Another one is another one is the on the Virginia coast. You have these little crabs that um, that create tunnels in the mud banks, and they, these are their little homes. Mm. They call them flutes. Um, and when we're out there on those mud flats, I love to like put the. I have these little tiny microphones, and I'll thread them down inside the 
the crab flute into its little hole, mm. its little home, and just kind of eavesdrop on the <laughs> domestic life of a, of yeah. a crab in the mud. Yeah. And it's so beautiful because this... The, the flute actually, the crab flute actually is a, it's a closed tube. So um, it has a resonant characteristic that's unique for that crab. So the crab made this flute, this, this hole, the hole, then the wind blows across the surface of it. The sounds from the outside world filter down into the tube and it resonates at a particular frequency Hmm. so this these crab flutes are actually kind of flutes like musical Hmm. instrument flutes they they have a pitch and so like down inside this hole you hear the whole world filtered through the crab's um ambient resonant home and then you hear the movement of the of the crab as it kind of probably wonders what the heck is this microphone down here? I got to get this thing out of here, you know. Right. Um, so so that's also a really interesting recording, and I'll, I can play that for you too. Yeah, wonderful. Let's let's give that a listen. that it's called the crab flute so that's that's like the you didn't you didn't come up with it you don't call that the crab flute that's what the kind of the scientists or folks in the area call it that's right that's right and they're all different so if you move the mic over to another one it has a different pitch a different sound um it's just and then the mud banks are just absolutely packed with these things like like thousands of them and there's Mm. just crabs everywhere and so if you you know this is like a giant orchestra of flutes. <laughs> wow. And you can actually hear it. Like if you're standing there, yeah. you'll hear the sound. Wow. That's really No, you can't, else. you can't hear it. You can't I hear see. it on uh, the surface. You have to like, you have to really amplify it, turn, uh-huh. you know, go in close. It's like a microscope, you know, you have Got to it. like zoom in and, and then you can hear that resonance. But if you're just standing on the mud banks, of course you don't, you don't hear the world of the crab. So this again is like about kind of, transposing our listening out of our out of our human centered perception into you know the way a crab might might hear the world so it's a kind of i mean there's definitely like a post-humanism that runs Mm -hmm. through all of this environmental listening um and it extends beyond animals animal hearing and animal vocalization to plants but also to you know things like the forests and the glaciers Yes. You know, it's one of the things I, it's just such an incredible feature of our world uh, that when um, this magnification point, right, like that you could take something uh, like an insect, right, that's you know very small or something you couldn't even perceive, you know, on, um, you know, like bacteria or something that's happening at a very small, small scale. And when you magnify it, it's just this like beautiful thing. <laughs> and there's this, this 
it's just the world is full of these things like that. We're just at the wrong scale to perceive, but but it just nevertheless exists out there, and that now we have some some tools um, that allow us to to peer into these different scales. Like looking at the planet, for that matter, from outer space. It's not something that you could ever do without a t- tremendous amount of technology, but it's this beautiful thing that's just kind of sitting there waiting. I don't know if it's waiting for us exactly, but it's um, it's there, and and we can totally. see it and we can experience it. Totally. Yeah. No, so much of this, um, the joy of this kind of environmental music is participatory. It's about being able to actually listen yourself, you know, so the, the, the microphone and the headphones allow you to kind of augment your orality so that you can now perceive things you couldn't before perceive. And those things are wonderful. And that's that participatory aspect of it is really it never stops being surprising. And I constantly underestimate how powerful that is. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's that, you know, when, I, when I'm teaching ecoacoustics, um, the first time that the students put on their, their headphones and they have their field recorders and they start going around listening to things, it's just, it's the best day of, of the semester because mm. they've just, they've, um, they're lost. I mean, I've lost the class. Like as soon as they put on their <laughs> headphones, they're, they're gone. Like it's so uh-huh. interesting and so consuming that, you know, I, I, I always underestimate how interesting it is. So I'll be like, okay, everybody, time to regroup. And that wasn't nearly long enough. Like I didn't give them like <laughs> right. nearly long enough to listen because it's so fascinating. Um, and then that just becomes like part of the way they hear. And I think of that as part of like expanding our um, – our understanding of the world uh, and really thinking outside, thinking that there's, there are things that we don't perceive. There's, you know, our phenomenology is limited and, um, and that's uh, good to know, but Mm -hmm. also it's okay. It's okay that there's many things that we don't, that we don't know about the world, but we just, it just sort of reminds us that we have to be extra um, conscientious you know, and, and careful and respectful and appreciative. Right. Of all this. Yeah. It's, it's really, it's, it's, it's really something. And what, one question I, I have for you, as we've been talking this over is, is kind of like the aesthetics theory of some of the stuff, or maybe even kind of how this has influenced your own way of thinking about aesthetics or appreciating um, beauty or, 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 or music more generally. So I can think of, so on the one hand, you're you know obviously a highly trained musician. You're a professor in a music department, and 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 as, as you were mentioning with respect to the you know the violinist who's playing the you know with some a different kind of instrument in the natural world. There's there's this there's there's value, or this is the question I sent is the kind of the value of learning and sophistication that's happening in a particular intellectual cultural tradition. But then that trains us to hear certain things or to listen for certain things um, in a particular way, right? Like we, like just even operating within a specific scale. And if something's off the scale, it sounds off. Or we have certain mm. expectations around what music is going to look like, or you know, there's you know, we're going to return back to these themes or or whatever else, right? There's just kind of certain structures that we've been trained to to listen for, um, and so there's this kind of tradition. And then when you're, you know, in the context of the sonification or, you know, when you're, 
you know, recording things in the natural world or operating, you know, playing the kind of these unpredictable instruments, you're going to get sounds, you're going to get patterns, you're going to get sequences that are not going to fit <laughs> with uh-huh. our, with those traditions. And so, I, so I guess the question is, how do you see these things fitting together? Like in a way, are we trying to undo the work that the traditions have done and, and training us to the, do the traditions make us kind of unable to hear certain things and then we're trying mm-hmm. to unlearn those or mm-hmm. um you know or is there something else happening so anyway it's just kind of mm-hmm. it's a pretty broad question but i just invite you to uh to reflect on that relationship between the the deep tradition that we inherit and kind of the work that you're doing that is really interacting with things that are very outside that tradition right right i think that's so interesting i i really feel like um that it's always about a process of opening. So like in my own experience, the, the knowledge of music and the ability to listen more closely, to understand what I'm hearing, to parse out voices, this is all about, you know, opening up new dimensions of listening and being able to appreciate levels of sound that I wasn't able to appreciate before. So I definitely think of it in that the knowledge really, um, helps, uh, you know, open up the world to, to just different dimensions of, of aesthetics and that that's just been a continually rewarding experience. Um, I, I also, you know, recognize that sometimes, you know, people who study music, then they, you know, maybe don't, they don't find themselves like appreciating something that's like too simple because it doesn't use it. But my, my feeling on that is that, that it's never gets more simple. It just gets more and more rich and you just kind of like find your way. So that things that you would have thought of as being simple, you just haven't figured out how to listen to them yet, you know? So they're, they're complex, but you just don't know it yet. And then you, if you keep listening, you keep discovering, you find the complexity that's already there. Or if something sounds chaotic, it just means you are you don't haven't listened to it in enough to understand its order its you know beauty um and so you know th- this has been my my process of discovery both learning you know traditional music which i was i was trained in traditional music theory and um uh, analysis and uh but then moving past that into uh computer music and beyond that into eco-acoustic music. For me, it's just been a every new kind of technology and new theory has just opened up um, opened up new worlds of, of sound. Sound that was always, always there. I mean, I've been listening to the, the glaciers for as long as I've been alive because I grew up around glaciers. But now I listen to the glaciers and I hear an incredible symphony and a kind of intelligence and a, and a real beauty that um, was invisible or inaudible to me uh, mm. before. Yeah, th- maybe we could just thinking about like where we grew up and, and that kind of and pl- and and place and that that's important importance for us. And also, you know, obviously climate change and you know one of the th- we haven't kind of even gotten into the kind of po- environmental politics, right? So there's there's a way in which the the music that you're creating. Um, is kind of operates on an aesthetic level that is, you know, kind of, I don't know if it's independent from politics, but it, it has its own status, let's just say. But then there is um, anything about the environment, um, 
has a political valiance to it, especially if we're talking about um, ice and the Arctic and climate change. And so I guess one, one question for you generally is how much of that kind of political reality, political context do you see as informing your work or is it um, or are these things kind of ind- independent in your mind and obviously your own, you know, kind of personal history and growing up? Um, in Alaska, you know, kind of how that's informed your choice of, of subjects, I guess. Well, um, I, I think of the work a little bit because of my biography, I guess, I think of it as kind of accidentally political hmm. in, that, in that I started off working in this in this way because I loved the natural world and I loved the sounds of it. And, and I thought human music was cool, but not nearly as not nearly as powerful as some of the things I heard in the natural world. And so, you know, I wanted to, to kind of discover how that could become part of music. And then it was um, because of, you know, living in Alaska and studying music at a time of rapid global warming when we were experiencing the um, dramatic effects of climate change early on mm-hmm. in Alaska, then that work took on kind of later a political uh, dimension. Um, I, I don't mind that at all. I, I think that if there's a way that the music could um, intersect with uh, with discourse around issues that matter to people, that's just fantastic. And, um, you know, I, I certainly have ideas about, um, you know, political ideas. Uh, and I feel like the music is a little bit separate from my political ideas in that what I try to do is create like a space for contemplating these topics. And I'll let other people kind of let other people frame the message um, and, and kind of address that in the way that, that they think it fits the, the context. So Mm. in, in my own way, that's like not to create the message, but rather just to let people learn by listening and feel like emotionally connected to these ideas and, celebrate them through melody and and rhythm and and just um concept and that that you know just that that process of of listening to the world will open up in them a similar kind of um feeling of empathy for the world that's you know so it's a kind of a politics of you know uh, not persuasion, but rather just like, mm-hmm. you know, presentation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm happy with that, you know, so, uh, and, and that's, I think also helped the music find its, um, find a place in, uh, in these discourse, like, like the music being used, like when the state department asked me to create music for their event, they mm-hmm. wanted like ambient music that would be based on the subject of their gathering, but not, you know, something with like a lot of fight song or anything like right. that, right? This is like a, a very kind of a different kind of music that's really celebrating the natural world, opening up as an aesthetic space so that Obama could put a message in there, you know? And mm-hmm. then his message was, you know, about addressing climate change at the Paris Accord that was coming up. And then that happens, but that's like another person's field. Like those, are, that's for the politicians as far as I'm concerned and they know how best to address those things meanwhile i love it that the music can be a part of that of that discourse yeah and you know one kind of related 
discourse, I guess, or related kind of reality of that, um, that we face in the kind of the Anthropocene I, I, and just the political moment that we're in is and there's a lot of folks that are, um, well, let's just say there's a, an inevitable amount of climate change that's on the horizon. Um, and it's obviously going to have you know, tremendous consequences for, for the Arctic. And the question that we have is really, um, you know, how much and how bad, not whether. And, um, and I, I just wonder, again, this is kind of with your own personal history and then the recent album and the, and the work that you've been doing in the, in the Arctic you know, is there a coming to terms with with the with with these changes, or there, is there a mourning that's happening, or is there a celebration, or are these things kind of entangled? Like, I guess that that's kind of the question: is you're capturing a moment in time in a place that's always changing, of course, over you know millennia, but now we're you know it's it's we're entering into a time of more profound change, and I guess yeah, the question is kind of is that partially what motivated this work at this time? Um, and yeah, your own kind of feelings about the, if there's sadness involved or if, if it's something that, you know, we can just kind of focus on what we have now and celebrate it. Mm-hmm. Well, art has, our art has always given us a place to um, deal with tragedy. Um, and that, and that can be, I mean, we can, you know, dance to the song about death. We can sing along with the melody about about a lost love of, you know, a lost love. And um, these kind of love songs and these kind of, you know, dancing to um, uh, destruction, topics of destruction, this is part of what music's been doing for a long time. Um, in many ways, I think that the, the subject, you know, the, the method's the same. If there's mourning involved, music's going to give us a place to, a, a way to mourn. It's going to give us a space to, you know, allow our emotions to uh, express. And, um, and you know, maybe it's, maybe the songs are not about, um, about breakups. You know, maybe that, maybe they're about, you know, the loss of the polar ice or the loss of the glaciers or, you know, the, the, the loss of a coast or the, you know, um, acidification of the ocean or the um, arid, uh, arid of, uh, of forests, you know, they're, they're going to be about topics of the environment because we feel deeply about these things. People feel deeply about them and we are already kind of mourning them. So, you know, it's not that the, I mean, I, I just think that it's, it's kind of like a love song, right? It's like, it's like another kind of way of of expressing um, art as a place for uh, for mourning. Um, that's just that's been a way that art's dealt with these things, these topics. And then, of course, you know, there's also the the active part of it that's not accepting necessarily that these um, are inevitable outcomes, but that there, you know, there may be ways to um uh ways to repair certain aspects of the environment to um restore things so right now i'm i'm working on a project called soundscapes of restoration and it's about listening to restoration projects so we're out at the virginia coast and we're listening to the sound of seagrass beds these seagrass beds were 
like nearly extinct and they were brought back um, and they've thrived again. And so here's an example of, you know, a restoration project that is, you know, having a, a, a large positive effect on the, on the ecosystem. Another one is like the oysters. We're doing oyster reef um, restoration uh, or we, the scientists are doing oyster reef restoration and I'm listening to that. So recording those sounds of the oyster reefs, counting the number of oysters. This is another huge success story. So inside all these, these tragedies, there's also like modes of sustainability and restoration. And we can lean into those things as well and think about, you know, how we can do that in a way that's, um, you know, uh, conscientious and, and ethically sound and, um, economically viable and, you know, and then I'm going to make music out of those things. So those are like more hopeful kinds of, uh, subjects. It doesn't all have to be about, you know, loss necessarily. It can be about restoration. Hmm. Yeah, that's, that, that, that makes, that makes perfect, perfect sense. So maybe the, my last, uh, uh, line of questions for you, um, today would be actually to return to a subject that you mentioned earlier, which is the, the notion of con conceptual art and, um, you know, the, the, this kind of, when you have layers, I mean, in the music that you make, there's, there's layers, there's a lot of layers and, um, you know, and people can kind of approach these, these songs in, in different ways, right? So it kind of, someone could be a casual listener and it could just kind of play in the background, right? Uh, folks can, um, kind of, uh, read more about the the underlying music and the theory behind it or kind of get into um like understanding for example what the sonification is if you've got a, a like a a, a a bloop that the where the bloop is you know compressed uh, uh sound over like a year's worth of a c extent data or or kind of whatever you have there and so i, I guess the question is kind of almost like a recommendation or how you think listeners um can kind of uh, approach these kind of conceptual pieces at, at different layers and um, like what, how, how should they kind of um, interact with these things? Is, the, is, it, is it intended to operate at different levels? And then if folks are interested in getting more into um, the kind of meaning behind what's happening, uh, what, what, are the, what are your thoughts on how to best do that? Well, there's in all, I mean, I think, yes, I think they're operating on different levels. So, you know, I work really hard to um, try to find a, an, a music as an expression of a, a kind of sonorous expression um, that's purely in the material domain. That is, it has, you know, notes and rhythms like organized sound that um, is satisfying to listen to. So that it is, you know, it is interesting to listen to, that it unfolds in a way that um, leads you along, that doesn't send you off, turn you off. And so there's this kind of like, it draws you in. Like I'm trying to make something that draws, draws me in as a listener. And, and I guess I would like that to also then work for other people to draw them in. Um, so on one level, the music's like designed completely to be, uh, understood on its own like if it came on the radio and you didn't know what it was you might just hear that and go whoa what is what is this this is interesting i'm i'm curious i'm, I'm enjoying it and then on another level um there's you know con it's conceptual art so 
the complete reverse of that would be you just read about it mm. in a program and it's like, oh, wow, that idea for a piece is really interesting. Like that's actually a really compelling idea. And then that needs to also be worked out in the piece so that there's like this kind of conceptual um, unfolding that's um, just as interesting as the material unfolding of the of the sound itself. Um, so like when you put those things together, hopefully the, the experience can be multifaceted. It can be kind of engaging your curiosity in your mind, but also like kind of um, making you feel things with your body and your, you know, in your ears and that that could be all working together. That's the kind of ideal situation, but it usually doesn't happen like that. It's usually more or less one or the other and different ways of listening. But I work really hard to put all that in there. Um, mm -hmm. You know, so the, the, the pieces should be able to be approached just as sound, as melodies, as, you know, on their surface, what's there. But then it's like, the sonification of an Arctic lagoon. Like it's a pretty nice electronic track. You know, mm -hmm. you could listen to it, not know anything about what it's doing, not even know the title and be like, oh yeah, that was a, that's a really nice piece of sound work. But then if you start understanding that every single sound in that piece is like, co is correlated to a data, a specific data in the environment, like light and velocity in the water and temperature and, and that everything is actually of a real place that's unfolding in a year, then it's kind of like, it's kind of an incredible experience because it's, it's like that thing that you thought was just um, an interesting sound object takes on another meaning, connects to another field. And then it's like a rich space for uh, discovery. That's that's kind of my, you know, my ideal. So I'm like always working on the conceptual side and on the material side. Yeah, well, it's, it's absolutely wonderful work. Thanks so much for sharing some of it with us today and, and your thoughts. It's been a, a real pleasure to chat with you. Mike, thanks so much for having me on your on your show. I just I just love talking to you.